Hi, I'm Hannah Bank, host of Sick Kids Versus. Today's episode is about COVID-19 and what Sick Kids is doing to help. I'm talking to the Chief of Infectious Diseases at Sick Kids, Dr. Upton Allen. For me, and for many others, he has become a leader and a resource on the science of the pandemic as it unfolds. Upton will talk about what we know and don't know about the virus so far, what we can expect, and how his research into immunity can change the future for all of us. Welcome to Sick Kids Versus, where we take you to the front lines in the fight for child health. This is Sick Kids Versus COVID-19. This conversation was recorded over video conference and edited for length and clarity. So can you begin by just telling me what you do at Sick Kids? So at Sick Kids, um, the chief of infectious diseases, so I see patients with various types of infections. I'm also a clinical researcher and I also teach. Can you explain to us really the basics of what COVID-19 is? It is a cousin of the first uh, SARS virus, so they're closely related. It's a uh, respiratory virus. The ways that it can be spread are similar to uh, several other respiratory viruses that are spread by droplets. And one of the fascinating things about this uh, particular virus is that it is novel, meaning that we were not, as human beings, we were not exposed to this before. And so our immune systems have no memory that recognizes this invading organism. Our immune systems are not prepared to put up a fight. And and that is one of the reasons why uh, so many people are ill. You were on the front lines during the SARS outbreak in 2003. So I was hoping you could just take us back, starting with the virus itself. Why did it have the world so worried? Well, the 2003 SARS outbreak was really quite a frightening experience. And yes, I was... Uh, a staff member in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the time. What was uh, really scary about this was that we had not, up until then, experienced anything like that before. It was particularly scary because uh, the individuals who were being affected were primarily healthcare workers. So SARS-1, if you may call it that, occurred within healthcare institutions, whereas COVID-19 is a community uh, entity with the potential for uh, involvement of uh, individuals within hospitals. But at the time, we did not know much about uh, SARS-1. We didn't know how the virus was spread. Eventually, we found that out. But in the initial stages, there were many unknowns. I, mean, I remember speaking with colleagues across the country and, uh, and elsewhere, and there were individuals who genuinely felt at the time that as healthcare workers, there was a chance that they could die. And from what I remember reading, the actual death rate was much higher than anything we had known before, certainly higher than COVID-19. Well, yes. It, and in fact, um, when one uh, looks at the case fatality rate, the case fatality rate or death rate with SARS-1 was about 10%. With COVID-19, 
the actual death rate is lower. It's just that the total number of deaths from COVID-19 far exceed those that occurred with SARS-1. Once a patient is infected, are they then immune to the virus for good? So that's a million-dollar question. Um, and, and unfortunately, we don't know for sure. It is, it is highly likely that once somebody has been infected, mounted an immune response, recovered from the viral illness, that there's some degree of immunity. But there are some unknowns. Number one, we don't know how robust or how strong that immune uh, you know, response is that will enable us to be protected. Second, we don't know how long that uh, immunity lasts. What we do believe, though, is that it's likely that if somebody got infected and has recovered, it's probably not likely they got infected a second time, even if the immune response wanes. I think if they got infected a second time, I think there's a good chance that the illness would be much milder and the outcome better um, overall. I think we all have that moment or we all had that moment in our own lives where we realized this is a big deal. This is spreading. This is scary. This is going to potentially affect people that I know. What was that moment for you? I must admit, and I, I want to be really clear about this, we, meaning all the scientists and everyone on the planet, we all got this wrong. We, we completely, between December and sometime in January, we underestimated COVID-19. And, and I remember being asked by someone at SickKids, um, if we were to compare SARS-1 with COVID, what would we say? And, you know, we said, you know, without doubt, we would be more concerned about SARS-1. And at that time, we were focusing on the case fatality rate of 10%. Yeah, and, and perhaps um, at the time, a lower case fatality rate with COVID. But what we had um, not realized was that this thing was going to take off like wildfire. And in that regard, the moment that I realized that we have a problem, this is when um, the outbreak started occurring on cruise ships, because um, that provided us with an opportunity to realize that, wow, this thing can be spread quite easily within a confined environment, uh, and, and we could uh, actually see the cruise ship, unfortunately, as if it were a natural experiment. And not only that, um, not only was, uh, you know, uh, uh, transmission occurring pretty easily, but there were, there were uh, uh, mortality as well. How has COVID-19 changed clinical practice in the hospital? The approach that we, we have taken uh, is to assume that whenever we're interacting with patients, that patient could potentially be COVID positive. And when we're uh, within a short distance, interacting with colleagues and others, there's a potential that one could have the transmission of the virus causing COVID. And so because of that, it's important to put in place key procedures of PPE to prevent uh, transmission. We feel that we are literally like soldiers going to war and we have the equipment that we need to fight and protect ourselves and at the same time protect others. I 
find one of the scariest things for me and the most intriguing is the variety of symptoms that people are experiencing from symptoms that are quite mild to really quite extreme. Can you talk a little bit about what you think is happening there and why we're seeing such a discrepancy? That's a really great question. Why is it that two people uh, get exposed to the virus and get infected? One gets it mild and the other maybe gets it more severe and, and can have pretty bad outcomes and some people can even die. There are a number of um, possible explanations. What we think is happening though is that there's a, a battle, if you will, between the immune system and the virus and that in some individuals who get more severely ill, that their immune system overreacts and that what one is looking at or manifestations of that overreaction of the immune system. And, and maybe that explains the differences that we see across different age groups as well, children versus adults. And I often say to my colleagues, in the case of uh, COVID in young children, it's almost as if their immune system negotiates with the virus and um, decides on an appropriate immune response to the virus that balances things and doesn't result in an overshooting, an overreaction of the immune system to result in um, outcomes that are not necessarily directly related to the virus itself. So if their immune response with this kind of negotiation, similar to what you're explaining that happens with children, it doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't fight as hard to overcome the virus. It just means that it doesn't have an overactive immune response. Uh, yes, it's, uh, you know, it's, the response is not, uh, is, is perhaps dialed to, to cope with what it needs to contain the virus. And, and there are several examples of that. There's one virus that I spend a lot of my time pre-COVID working on um, called Epstein-Barr virus, the EBV virus. And that virus, when it affects uh, children, those children are often completely well. Many of them don't even know that they got infected with the EBV or the monovirus. They're literally completely well. The same virus infects a teenager and they get infectious mononucleosis. Young adults who are non-immune to EBV get infectious mononucleosis. And in that situation, it's the same virus causing two different manifestations in different age groups. And where we think that what is happening there is that the immune system in the younger child is more receptive to the virus without putting up too much of a overreaction can't be extrapolated to all situations, but perhaps in COVID, it might apply. Only research, though, will help to clarify that. Can you talk a little bit about your research and how it began? The question that we had was why it, it is that some individuals get mild illness and others get more severe illness, and why children have milder illness and adults have more severe illness. And could it be related to um, the signals that are, in a grossly simplified way, 
the signals that are coming from the genes in our bodies to our immune systems. And that perhaps in a 40-year-old who gets severe illness versus a 40-year-old who gets a mild illness, that the differences within that particular age group relates to variations in the genes. And that maybe those uh, variations do apply to other age groups as well and across age groups. And so our focus then was on what we refer to as the genetic markers of the susceptibility to look at genetic variations and how perhaps those might influence um, immune responses. And, and indeed, in uh, identifying genes that are potentially different in different individuals, we could uh, predict what immune pathways are influenced. And by predicting what immune uh, pathways are influenced, we can then decide on the way that perhaps those individuals could be treated, or maybe um, how vaccines could be developed to target that particular type of immune response. And so we've been fortunate to collaborate with an incredibly talented team of individuals looking at different areas uh, of the immune system. And, uh, and in that regard, um, things are going extremely well. What are you hoping to identify through these genetic tests? Are you hoping there'll be one sort of genetic modification that you'll be able to address? Or do you suspect that there will be many different markers that you will have to then treat people on a much more individual basis? It's likely that there'll be uh, several different markers, but even if there's several different markers or variations, so to speak, it might well be that we could group them into um, categories based on the way they influence the immune system. Then we can focus on those ways that immune systems are altered or influenced. And so by better understand how to devise treatments, uh, or how to focus on vaccines. I've heard recently um, on the news that <clears throat> children are presenting in some new ways, for example, things that either look like Kawasaki or are associated with Kawasaki disease. I think they've been calling them COVID toes. Have you heard about this? Yes, there, there, are, there are two entities that, are, that have been in the news recently. The, the COVID toes... Um, referred to uh, a skin condition where it's discoloration of the toes and, and the dermatologists are looking at that. It is really not quite clear, one, if that is due to COVID, two, what mechanism is explaining why this is occurring. But the preliminary tests uh, so far that we've done have shown that in most of the kids who have been tested, They've been negative for COVID. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that COVID could not have been the trigger. What happens is that the virus comes, does its thing, leaves, but leaves an uncontrolled immune system. And that uncontrolled immune system then gives you various manifestations. In other words, the, the guest has come and has left a lot of stuff behind to be cleaned up. The Kawasaki is a different entity, but it's likely that it's that same phenomenon. And so we and others now are carefully looking at those two entities, as well as other entities, to determine the relationship between them 
and COVID and the phase of the illness and how those cases are to be managed. And so what's next for your research? What sort of do you identify as being the biggest challenges moving forward? I asked myself that question as well. I said, you know, in, in six to 12 months, where do we really want our research to lead? Obviously, it would be great if by then we have enough data that inform the way we manage patients. That's one. But there's another important aspect that I refer to as if there's going to be a magic bullet, if there is going to be a magic bullet, it's going to be a vaccine. And it is quite likely that the research that we're doing will be part of what we need for what I refer to as vaccine readiness. In other words, we would be able to assess the immune responses of various populations of individuals to determine if the responses that they had were such that uh, it is safe to give them the vaccine, one, and two, that uh, the vaccines will be effective. So there are a number of um, things that will come out of our research that will contribute to what I refer to as vaccine readiness. I was wondering about children that are asymptomatic. We're still getting uh, data on that. The bottom line is that um, there are some individuals who are asymptomatic, and that is um, they have the virus, but the infection is so low grade that for practical purposes, There are no symptoms, and we call them asymptomatic. The second category are individuals who are pre-symptomatic. In other words, they have the virus, they have no symptoms, but if you follow them for a few more days, they develop symptoms. And we see transmission of, of virus, of COVID, in both of those scenarios. So it's really important that during this pandemic, that we assume that anyone could be infected and that they're either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. And therefore, we need to put in place the appropriate PPE measures to prevent transmission in those situations where individuals are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Is there anything that I missed or that you feel um, is necessary to sort of speak to our audience about? You know, it's not possible to um, overstate the importance of some key things like staying home when you're ill, social or physical distancing, using the appropriate PPE and the appropriate hand hygiene measures. You know, it's, it's really amazing. We talk about those things during the flu season. And here it is during this COVID pandemic. Thank you so much. I feel like having you at the helm gives me so much comfort. Thank you. Uh, You were really able to explain things beautifully, and I hope to continue to follow your research and that we can continue to connect and hear about the wonderful things that are happening with your work. So thank you so, so much. Thank you. Happy to speak to you anytime. From SickKids Foundation, this is SickKids Versus. Thanks for listening. If you want to support work like this, visit sickkidsfoundation.com slash podcast to donate. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to Sick Kids Versus. Sick Kids Versus is produced by me, Hannah Bank, Kate Daly, Colin J. Fleming, and Jillian Savigny. Sound design and editing by Soundworks. Who's <laughs>
For photos, transcripts, sources, show notes, and lists of donors, as well as researchers and clinicians who help make this breakthrough possible, visit sickkidsfoundation.com slash podcast.